This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Pizza history and preservation are three of my favorite things, and it's rare that they come together under one PreserveCast episode. But that's what we've got in store this week. A topic and conversation made even sweeter by the fact that it's set in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, where pizza historian Alexander Hughes conducted much of his research. Get ready for a big bite of food history on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're super excited to be talking with Alexander Hughes, who's a six-year PhD candidate in the Department of History at York University. Um, And he is working on some really interesting uh, work and research around the history of pizza, particularly as it pertains to my old neck of the woods in up in Buffalo, New York. Um, and uh, it's rare that we get to combine my hometown pizza and preservation all in one podcast, but that's what we're going to do today. So, Alex, um, it's uh, we always like to know a little bit about the people that we're talking with before we jump into their area of expertise. So, um, where'd you grow up and what put you on the path to becoming a, uh, a historian of pizza? So I grew up in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, my love for history started really young. My grandfather was a collector um, of material items and it could be anything from uh, World War II memorabilia to he was a buyer. So as he traveled around the world, he always had material items around his house that I always would go and explore. Um, By the time I got to start my undergrad, I actually started as a communications major. But after one semester, I realized I was taking more history classes than uh, communications classes. And that kind of sent me on the right path. Um, My career in academia has just been a series of events where, you know, one day in fourth year of my undergrad, I was talking to a professor and said, I'm really interested in the history of Disneyland. And that ultimately ended up becoming a uh, master's project uh, where I worked on the representations of U.S. history in Disneyland Park. And, you know, midway through my master's, it was coming towards the end. I knew that my love for history was hanging on and I decided to put in for a Ph.D. Um, Originally, I had proposed a U.S. history topic. Um, But in the first few weeks of my PhD, I actually sat down with my supervisor and she suggested, hey, you know, you're at a Canadian university, why not take the Canadian history field course? And I said, you know, I haven't taken Canadian history since first year of my undergrad, but I end up taking this uh, doctoral level course on Canadian history. And I kind of rediscovered a love for the history right around me, the history of Toronto. And midway through that first year, my supervisor said, do you want to change your topic? And I really started considering how can I do a transnational Canadian and US um, dissertation? And I was sitting at home one day and I started watching the Vice series um, with Frank Pinello of Best Pizza in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where he goes around New York City, tries different pizzas. And I was going, you know, a pizza history would be an interesting topic. And I got fixed on this idea of a Great Lakes pizza history. And at one point, I was looking at Toronto, Buffalo, Windsor, Detroit. I was going to go to Montreal and Rochester as well. But I ultimately settled on Toronto and Buffalo, uh, one, for accessibility of archives, but two, because I really got to work on 
one city that was really that is my hometown and one that was nearby and told quite a different story than what happened in Toronto. So that's kind of how I stumbled onto this project. And, you know, now it's been five, six years of research on it. Um, and actually just found out it will be defended on March 4th. So we're near the end. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very close. And I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of like pizza puns and pizza jokes that can be made, but obviously you'll have a pizza party when you successfully defend it. I mean, I, I'm hoping to have a pizza party, right? I mean, um, it seems appropriate. I mean, I've taken a big slice out of history here. Yeah, okay, um, here we go. Usually it's let's, cheesy. <laughs> yeah, let's get them all out of the way. Um, so so let before we jump into the dissertation um and and talk about the comparative history and sort of history of pizza in this area and what you've uncovered, let's talk a little bit about pizza and its history. Because it's like it's one of these things that's so ubiquitous that you're just like, well, it's always been there. And of course everything has a history. Um, how do we have any sense for how old this food is? Like if you're going back and like looking at it as a food form, how far back does this thing go? What are, what are we ingesting and what, what history are we connecting with when we do it? So the history of pizza is very much a global history. It often takes place outside of Italy. Um, sixth century BCE, we have, uh, records indicating that soldiers under Darius the Great were actually cooking flatbreads on their shields. Um, facing up towards the sun. And they were putting cheese and dates on these and baking it. So not quite a pizza as we recognize it. I mean, we often say now a pizza is a dough, cheese, tomato sauce product. Um, ancient Greece, they were cooking flatbreads. Uh, Roman soldiers were adding cheese and olive oil to matzah and baking that. Um, but even the the importation of tomatoes to Italy is a long history where they're found in South and Latin America, imported to Spain, where most Europeans wouldn't touch them because there was this belief that the tomato fruit was poisonous. Um, it was the Italians were the only ones that seemed to adapt to eating tomatoes. And this is in the late 1500s. Um, but I mean, we don't really know how it jumped from that to actual pizza. Um, 1840s, um, there's records indicating a variety of pizza toppings in Italy. Um, the first pizza stand in Italy, Antica in Naples, uh, opens in 1738 just as a stand for peddlers, but becomes a more formal um, bakery with an oven in 1830. And then there's always the classic story of the tricolor margarita pizza created for Margarita of Savoy, you know, with the green, white, and red. Um, but no records actually from that era indicate that a pizza was even served to um, Margarita. But it was this one uh, pizza maker, Raffaele uh, Esposito, who went around telling this tale that ultimately became popular legend. But no newspapers or anything about that event actually indicate a pizza was consumed. Um, and so then when guess, does it jump to North America? When do, do we, when's, when's the first time we see pizza as we would recognize it in North America? Is it in Canada or is it in the U.S.? So it, it comes to the U.S. first. Um, it's coming with Italian immigrants who are mainly producing it within their own homes. But you have to remember, a lot of these immigrants were sojourning men on their own. And, you know, when you have a bunch of men living in a communal living situation, and as I've looked, 
not many even had, you know, proper ovens or anything to produce pizza, we can assume most of these guys weren't making pizza in their homes. Um, but as more Italian immigrants come over in the late 1800s, we see a more formalized um, opening of pizzerias um, so and bakeries um, where Italians are coming over. They're evoking the concept of ethnic economy, opening um, businesses to serve their co-ethnic community and the demands of their, that community, so including the foodways. So Lombardi's is uh, widely regarded as the first pizzeria to have opened. Um, it opened in 1905 at 32 and a half Spring Street in Manhattan. But there's some debate as to if Lombardi's was really the first um, or was Lombardi trained at another bakery that wasn't properly registered. Um, but about 1905, we do see that first pizzeria. Um, and they're appearing in centers of Italian life, you know, New York City, New Jersey, Chicago. I think Buffalo uh, is about 1920, uh, Montreal and Toronto. Toronto's first pizzeria is 1956. It's interesting. And, you know, it's funny, like, um, you know, I, I grew up in Buffalo, but my my in-laws were in, like, Western PA, and they talk about it like in the 60s, 70s as like, oh, this was pizza. And it's <laughs> it's remarkably different than what we would even consider pizza. And it was sort of like we didn't really have Italian. So this is what we imagined pizza was. And it's so it's interesting when you say 1920 in Buffalo and, and even into the mid part of, the you know, stretching back into into recent memory. You know, pizza, it wasn't always as ubiquitous as I guess it is today. I mean, now it's just every it seems like probably you'd be hard pressed to find an american who hasn't either eaten it or hasn't seen it in its traditional form but that wasn't always even the case right like it's become much more ubiquitous yeah like within the period of my study 1950 to 1990 there's people that live during that period where you know pizza was a strange immigrant food in the 1950s that they never necessarily wouldn't touch right but then you fast forward to the 1990s and it's available in almost every city and town, you know, a few pizzerias per block even. Um, and it, it's this gradual acceptance of Italian foodways um, that emerges. So it, it's a gradual acceptance of Italian food. And we can really point to two events that occur, one being prohibition and the other being the Great Depression. So under prohibition, when alcohol is banned federally in the United States, um, Italian restaurants still were operating and serving alcohol because there was this Italian culture of homemade wine, which was drawing non-Italians into these spaces where, you know, they were potentially sampling um, homemade wine and Italian food. Um, when it comes to the Great Depression, people are looking for cheaper eats. And, you know, something like a pre-made pasta or a canned tomato sauce is, is that cheapy, right? It's not hard to produce. It's filling and can feed an entire family. Um, but when we look to Canada, that's also an interesting case where pizzas, the first pizzas that Canadians consumed weren't made by Italians, but were made by um, Anglo-Canadians themselves, where they were seeing recipes in women's magazines and in cookbooks um, and were producing pizzas themselves. Something like the Chef Boyardee pizza kit is the way many Canadians actually first sampled pizza before going to a pizzeria to find something of a better quality. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that's, that's the, a lot of people's first entree and you still hear that. So 
why Buffalo and Toronto? You touched on that quickly, but is this a, a, a nexus of pizza culture? I mean, as a Buffalonian, I like to think that uh, obviously we have something special um, in in Buffalo pizza. But but why? I mean, you, you talked about that research and, you know, just proximity and things like that. But is there something special um, going on in those two communities when it comes to pizza? Definitely. So when we looked so let's compare the cities to begin with. So in 1950, um, comparable size populations, but also comparable Italian immigrant populations. So they're kind of starting at the same place, okay, when it comes to um, the population that's creating pizza. But what we see is this divergent path between the two cities where Toronto becomes a uh, financial and cultural center for all of Canada. And Buffalo loses prominence. Buffalo isn't even a center within New York State, um, where it's surpassed, obviously, by New York City. But what's going on with pizza in the two cities is a telling tale of these diverging economic paths. Toronto adheres to this very um, big corporate-style pizza while maintaining the Ma and Pa local independent pizzerias. Um, but also these big conglomerate pizzerias open in Toronto, um, Pizzaville, Pizza Pizza, Pizza Nova, to name a few. Versus in Buffalo, there was this resistance against uh, conglomerates even coming into the city. The one exception was Pizza Hut, which actually operated as a loss leader up until uh, the COVID pandemic in 2020, where they were actually forced to shut down the remaining uh, Pizza Huts in Buffalo. As the population and urban economy declines there, no big conglomerate was really interested in conducting business there. So Buffalo held on to an independent local pizzeria culture, unlike a city like Toronto. So it is really comparative. That's interesting. And I have read before, I don't know if you've come across this, but that Buffalo, and this isn't supposed to just be a, a Buffalo fest here on PreserveCast, but we'll, we'll, we'll dive for a second and indulge the listeners in my hometown. But um, that it has one of the the lowest like um, national franchise rates of any any comparable city in the country, and I think there's a lot that that makes up for that. But there's sort of this fiercely loyal um, loyalty when it comes to local brands, and it's interesting that I mean Pizza Hut is like that does well everywhere, right? And it's like one of the only things that like it goes out of business in Buffalo. It's crazy. Well, one of the crazy stories of Buffalo fast food and that resistance of big conglomerates is I remember an article out of um, one of the student newspapers for uh, SUNY um, Buffalo, where a Burger King had moved in and taken over um, the plot of land that had pre previously been like a diner that many students enjoyed. And the students didn't want to go there because they went it destroyed whatever this restaurant was before. And it was only once that Burger King put in the uh, SUNY logo behind the counter, um, like in a tiled mosaic type thing, that students were actually inclined to go eat there. So I think that really speaks to this uh, localized character of fast food in that city. So this might be a place to take a quick break and then come back um, and talk about what pizza's development tells us about our culture, the surprises that you found in Buffalo, the kind of mapping work that you did. Um, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need 
by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're talking to Alexander Hughes, who is a six-year PhD candidate in the Department of History at York University. He is about to defend his dissertation, Lake Effect Pizza, Pizza Culture and Consumption in Toronto, Ontario, and Buffalo, New York, 1945 to 1990. Um, And before we took our break, we were talking about why Buffalo and Toronto, the history of pizza, when it came to the the Americas. Um, And I'm curious, in, in the work that you've done sort of comparing Toronto and Buffalo, obviously there's a big difference in, you know, the adoption of national brands versus sort of mom and pops. Um, how did you detail that? I know you've done a lot of work around mapping and identifying locations. How did that work? How did that all come together? And, and what did you find? Like, what, what, are, the, what are the big picture, um, I guess, uh, sort of themes that you uncovered in this work? So one of the big features of my project was GIS mapping. And what I was able to do was I went into city directories, yellow pages, um, supplier guides to locate where pizzerias existed. And what I did was I created multi-layered maps to basically follow year by year where pizzerias grew across cities. And what I was able to do was locate, did pizzerias originally open near Italian centers of life? Well, in Buffalo, that's the case. In Toronto, it's not. In Toronto, they open near centers of industry, where we can assume that Italian Canadians were working and looking for something to eat. Now, what this mapping reveals is the importance of suburbanization and post-war consumerism. So as these cities were growing and new suburbs are developing and post-war consumerism is creating demands for pizzerias, what pizzerias started doing was actually following where others had already set up. So if one set up on this street, another would set up a few blocks away. And what we see is overlapping patterns where overlapping delivery areas, overlapping walk up um, to ultimately create this new demand for pizza. So, you know, we're looking at areas that were once uninhabited in 1950, but now have, you know, 10 pizzerias in a small city block area. Now, did you compare the actual type of pizza itself so did you look at like did you get into that or is that too challenging to do because it's so ephemeral like is there because i know that that, that's always like a big fight right like oh this kind of pizza is better and 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 there was maybe two or three years ago sort of this battle about does buffalo have a specific type of pizza it's like and some people joke that it's like well it's halfway between new york and chicago so it's sort of like it's it's like mid-range or something but like did you get into that into the actual pizza itself or is it more the business of pizza so i had to get more into the business and the issue is we don't have records that indicate you know you ate a slice of pizza in 1956 and wrote down what it tasted like. Those don't exist. So, I mean, I was able to turn to the voices of food critics, but often those don't represent the average person's opinions. 
Now, the big thing about taste profiles, like I've had close to 700 slices over the working on this project. And I can confirm, you know, a slice in Toronto tastes a lot different than a slice you'll find in Buffalo. And there's different um, taste profiles that definitely emerge. But I think one of the more interesting stories is more about the types of pizzas created. So like the Hawaiian pizza is probably the most Canadian of pizza styles. It was developed in Chatham, Ontario, which is midway between Toronto and Detroit, essentially. And it was a diner slash Chinese restaurant um, that eventually started making pizza. And the guy who owned the place, Sam Panopoulos, would travel to Buffalo or travel to Detroit, sample different cuisines there, and then bring them back to Satellite Restaurant, uh, which he owned, to produce them. And one day he started throwing pineapple and ham on pizza after looking at um, creating a sweet and sour Chinese dish. And ultimately, this style, the Hawaiian, started to spread across southwestern Ontario and eventually um, penetrates into the United States, which I ultimately say is there is a real connection between Great Lakes cities, be it transporter shopping, you know, cross, cross-border familial relations, that kind of thing. And so something like the Hawaiian pizza appearing in Buffalo, well, that's a very southwestern Ontario thing, um, versus something like the white pizza, like with the ricotta, and a um, olive oil base rather than a tomato sauce. That's something that didn't actually really cross into Ontario until the late 1980s. Um, and that was more of a California-influenced pizza, um, if we think of like a Wolfgang Puck-style thing from Spago and Beverly Hills. But the white style, for whatever reason, never really came to Canada. So depending on how you feel about Hawaiian pizza, either you have the Canadians to thank or the Canadians to blame. So <laughs> I, I, you know what? I stand by it as the most patriotic uh, Canadian dish we can eat. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I was going to say it's like poutine with some, some uh, maple syrup and uh, Hawaiian pizza. I mean, what's, what's more and watch hockey. What's more, you know, uh, exactly. You know, Even though it's named after a U.S. state. exactly yeah yeah sorry about that um so you know this is a preservation podcast and we're talking you know we've got the series this is a part of this year sort of about the legacy of different foods and how foods preserve a component of our past and how we use food to engage with the past and it's they're very nostalgic in some ways um because what is more triggering than smell and food but are, are we losing any aspect of that early pizza culture is there is there a preservation story to this? How how should the preservation community approach things like legacy foods like pizza? Should we be preserving old pizza parlors? Do we what's the best way to kind of capture this? I'm curious if you've kind of like come across that or thought about that in your travels. We're losing a lot of our original pizzerias. Um, a lot are as a result of the COVID pandemic, and especially here in Toronto, where we were shut down as one of the longest. Uh, cities shut down in North America. A lot of these businesses closed. So Toronto's first pizzeria, Vesuvio, uh, closed very, very early in the pandemic. Um, Are the buildings of historic value when they were built in the 1950s and have been updated? Yes. Um, But I think where tradition is held onto and the preservation is, you know, what ends up happening is some of these third, fourth, fifth generation uh, family members are holding on to some of these pizzerias or they're going on and opening their own as well. So um, 
you know, it may not be the original name, but they're opening upscale pizzerias while still holding on to that traditional production that, you know, they learned from their grandparents one day. Um, I think the independent pizzeria in some ways is under threat by the rise of these big conglomerate and chain pizzerias, as well as other fast food fads. Um, I think that is one of the biggest struggles is, you know, some days people want that frozen pizza or they want that, you know, $5 pizza rather than spending to find that little local pizzeria um, to pay, you know, $25, $30 for an artisanal style pizza. Um, But yeah, you know, out of the top first 10 pizzerias uh, to have opened in Toronto, I think about four or five have closed in most over the past two years. So it's interesting because there's some cities, um, like I think it's San Francisco that has a, 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 a legacy business program where they identify legacy businesses. They try and try and provide them additional support. Um, there's a registry of them. It sort of seems like maybe we need a, uh, a national register of historic pizza places. Like, and I think, we, I think we should work on that together. Exactly. I mean, even in Buffalo, we think Bocce Club Pizza started as a house that was the Bocce Club. You know, it was returning service members from World War II, Italian service members, Italian-Americans, all like to play bocce at this one house. And they discovered a pizza oven in the basement. And, you know, this story of um, this guy who was actually at the Nuremberg Trials, he comes back to Buffalo, he buys the bocce club, he finds this pizza oven in the basement, and then goes on to start producing pizzas. And then, um, you know, expands the business outward to multiple locations. The same with Santora's in Buffalo started as a household window, um, where the family actually just sold to their neighbors out of their front window. So I, I think places like that should be held on to definitely as they're important pieces of culinary history in these cities. Um, but I, I think when it comes to the business, a lot of them are slowly being lost right now. All right. So we'll pivot here before we come to the conclusion, some some rapid fire ones. Um, any favorite silly pizza restaurant names that you came across in your, I mean, cause like there's nothing goofier sometimes than what you name a pizzeria. So I'm curious if you came across any doozies that you want to share. I can't believe it's not hamburger. That's in a brackets, real place. Pizza. Yeah. That is one that, is that Canadian or, or Buffalonian? I, I don't know where that one is, to be honest. That's just I think I met the owner of that one at Pizza Expo a few years ago. Um, I also love um, well, I think they've actually dropped the word love from it, but uh and pizza, which started on 8th Street in Washington, DC. Um, they were kind of like the Chipotle of pizza where, you know, you can choose every topping to go on and they make it right in front of you. But I love that name. Um, and there was a short lived kosher, uh, frozen pizza that was called Noah's Ark, which I, I, I just thought that one was funny. Anytime I came across that one. Those are, those are some good ones. Um, do you have a favorite pizza place? Yeah, so I actually, and I live close by, but um, Il Pisano um, in Toronto is Toronto's third oldest pizzeria. It's also down the street from me. I worked at, as a lifeguard at a pool across the street from it So when I was younger. So it was quick to you know run over there, grab a slice. It was only years later as I started on this project, I went, wow, that place is really old. <laughs> And are you sort of a, a a known quantity now in pizza pizza places? Like they, you come in and they they know you're the pizza guy. 
Yeah, the odd place. I mean, even my delivery guy from the one chain I appreciate, he recognizes me now. Um, and I mean, I've been fortunate enough to attend things like Canadian Pizza Expo, um, as well as World Pizza Expo. So I've been able to network with pizzeria operators. Um, I know quite a few in New York City as well. And I'm waiting for travel restrictions to ease up a bit before I can go and visit their pizzerias now. Very cool. So what's what's next after you uh, work on this? You get this dissertation defended. Where do you head? Are is is are you continuing in your pizza studies? Will you be the 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 pizza historian? Are there others that you um, uh, other pizza historians across the across the globe who get together? So I'm the only academic pizza historian at this hmm. point. Uh, there's quite a few amateur historians, you know, who are interested in uh, the history of pizza pizza and pizzerias, but I'm the first to have done a localized study um, comparing two cities, especially two transnational cities. Um, at this point, though, I'm interested. I mean, I'm looking at postdoc opportunities. I'm looking at a few academic jobs, um, but I'm open to adjuncting as well. Um, I also hope to turn this into a book. Um, yeah. So I'm going to start shopping around to a few university presses. If anybody's interested, feel free to contact me on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, my defense is six weeks away now and looking forward to the future after that. Very cool. So um, question we ask everyone before they go, what's your favorite historic place or site? Got to be. I'm going to go with a Toronto location. Um, okay. I'm going to go with Casa Loma. Um, which is Toronto's castle. It was built between 1911 and 1914 at a cost of about $5 million back then. And it, the cool feature of Casa Loma is that it was this guy's private residence and it had so many secret features to it, hidden tunnels. Um, it had, like, he had a full car garage, you know, before cars were even very popular. He had an indoor pool, but he actually ran out of money while he was building it. So, it's like three quarters done. Um, but then it has this cool history where after he has to move out because he ends up kind of foreclosing on the space, he only lived there about 10 years. Um, it becomes a hotel for Americans to visit during Prohibition. Um, and it was known for boozy parties. Um, Sonar was secretly built in its stables uh, during World War II. Um, it, it just has this super deep history and it i mean at the end of the day it's a castle with turrets that you can climb and stuff it's built in like a gothic revival semi-spanish style and what is it today today it's a museum okay um it's gone through a few hands now um i believe it's now operated by a private organization it was operated by the city at one point um, it's very popular for weddings um, and movie filming as well. So I think X-Men uh, was filmed there, one of the X-Men films. Uh, the film Chicago was also done there as well. Hmm. Um, but it's also a regimental museum. It's a museum of the history of girl guiding um, in Canada. Oh, okay. Because the guy who built it, Sir Henry Pellet, his wife was like the patroness of... Um, girl guiding. So it has these wings to it, but also the living corridors you can explore. Um, it has a secret tunnel to take you out to the stables. It's an obscure site because, you know, nobody expects a castle in the middle of Toronto, but um, 
it, it's a gorgeous property and it's been very well maintained. Well, it's a it's a good answer and one I'm not familiar with. So um, this has been a really fun conversation, made me hungry, excited to think about pizza and uh, uh, dig a little deeper next time uh, we place an order um, and looking forward to picking up your book once it's out. Maybe once it's published, we can have you back. Thank you for having me and I hope you can pick that book up someday. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.